live from Dearborn. This is the Locktoon Podcast. I'm Amy. And I'm Mel. Today we're covering John 5.1, chapter 19, and John 3.20 of Nona the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. It's a John sandwich. Mm. <laughs> this is a fairly short section, but it really packs a punch because we finally get to see what Nona's tantrums are like. Yeah. And before we begin, just a reminder that if you want to support artists and the Locktoom fan community, you can always check out our Locktoom creator hub at locktoompod.com slash fan merch. And as always, if you would like to support Amy and I here at the pod, you can find stickers, pins, and magnets on our website. A quick note for those of you who have ordered pins, we are a little delayed getting those out because U.S. Postal Service decided that we can't send them out the way that we have been. So it's going to cost us a bit more, and we're trying to figure out how we can get those to you in a way that's not going to break the bank. So hang tight. We'll get those out to y'all. And we've got a new sticker coming to you real soon. Hopefully by the time this episode is published, (laughs) it'll be up. And I have one clue for you as to what the sticker is, and that is that they have complex social relations. Relations? (laughs) Relations? <laughs> Relations. <Ooh. laughs> uh, oh, yeah. So check that out. Finally, thank you guys for sticking with us over the last couple of months, slash, I guess, all of 2023, really, as we adjust to big life changes. We're hoping to keep episodes a little bit more regular in the future, but also given that we haven't even seen a cover reveal of Elect of the Ninth, I don't think we're in a huge amount of a chime crunch, so... We'll just keep on getting them out to you as quickly as we can while keeping the quality up to snuff. Up to snuff. (laughs) Great. So before we get into the actual episode today, I've got a bad joke for you. (laughs) What do you call an angry instrument after it got a little too much sun? An angry instrument after it got a little... um... I don't, I have no idea. <laughs> a tan trumpet. Oh my God. <laughs> a tan- I'm trying to stay on theme here. <laughs> and uh, it was tough. It was tough. But I uh, came up with something. So All I could think about it. was a trombone, but that wouldn't have fit the joke. <laughs> no. Trombone is such an obvious instrument for this series. You know, I had to think outside the box, if you will. I appreciate that. Well, it's good to be back. So let's jump right in with John 5.1. So we already had the letters from the cipher spelling out the tower has r, and now we have the tower has riah. They um, added an E and an A to our message here that Tamsin Muir so brilliantly wrote out for us. (laughs) (laughs) And It's the same situation, John and the narrator, who I think we're still in agreement, is Harrow experiencing Electo's memories. They're still outside this big concrete building, which we think the facility in Canaan House and also like the original facility where the cryo tank project was being done, like their home base. Mm -hmm. So John explains that their original allies let them off the hook for all the crazy cow shit, (laughs) but also didn't help them continue the project. 
So they didn't get in too much trouble, but also everyone's put them to the side because they've really freaked people out too much. Yeah. And so then John describes this time where you all can imagine this. You're getting together with your buddies. You're getting drunk. You're barbecuing, (laughs) which is what's happening here, which is funny because there's a lot of cow jokes throughout these like (laughs) two John chapters. And he says something about... We had a lot of beef that we had to eat, which was sad, but at least there were no vegans here. (laughs) I don't know. It's just funny. But yeah, so they're just shooting the shit together. And John's like, you know, you can imagine him getting really trashed and being like, yo, guys, let's save the world. Yeah. (laughs) And everyone's like, yeah, sure, John, but also how? Mm -hmm. And Pyrrhus says that if John wants any power... He has to scare the shit out of people so that they'll listen to him. And John doesn't take this advice for a little bit, but I think this is the beginning of the spiral into pretending to be a cult. Yeah, yeah. I think it really sets the stage for what happens next, which is a bunch of guys in suits show up and they're being kind of mysterious. John doesn't know where they're from or what exactly they want, but they ask John if he can make their leader who is dead, appear alive for whatever reason. And they offer him a ton of money, like billions of dollars. And John's like, I think I can do that. And so they set up this deal and they decide that they're going to go fly out and meet these mysterious people in suits to actually do the deed, to have John make this person appear alive. Right before they fly out to seal the deal, though, they get an update about the trillionaires, the FTL project, the Faster Than Light project. And basically what had happened is that John and crew had been denied like every single go ahead and just had had to go through all this red tape. And basically these trillionaires who are doing this other competing project to like save the world had gotten all the go aheads that John and crew had always wanted. And part of that was because the trillionaires were promising to fund the whole project themselves. And so it's like charitable. And John and crew think it's bullshit, which honestly, I would have thought it was bullshit too. It should be obvious to everyone that money is not going to have the same value. So why are we still obsessed with money? (laughs) I don't really get it. It's psychological, right? Isn't it Augustine's brother? I think it's Alfred that says, I don't know if it's in this John chapter or the next one, that money is just a collective illusion. Right. You know, it's all a big lie, but it still holds power over people. And I think it's a comment on society in like this instance that even at the end of the world, people are still obsessing over money. Right. So I think this is a big motivation for why John decides to take on this puppeting gig. It's basically like, all right, we just got screwed. All these trillionaires are doing this scam. And we still are trying to save the world. And so we're going to puppet this government official so that we can just fund our own work and actually do this the right way, which is an admirable thing here. Right. But you can tell that John is getting really, he's just tired of doing it by the rules at this point. And he's starting to kind of go a little bit off the wires. You can also see here that C, aka Cassiopeia, is starting to push the brakes a little bit. She's trying to be like, well, you know, it's a different time now and the cryo project would have been easier if, you know, we had been doing it now. Now things are really desperate. 
you can tell that she's just kind of like trying to hold the rest of the crew back from just going absolutely nuts. And Mercy Morton and Augustine, M&A, are united, which as we know is scary when they actually agree on things. So that's where they're all at. When M and A and John fly out on a helicopter to meet these mysterious suits out on an oil rig. So that's just setting the stage for what happens next. So John asks to see the body and recognizes the body and realizes that he's not dealing with just some random group of powerful people. He's dealing with the a nation's government, which I think I remember when I read the book the first time thinking it was the prime minister of Australia. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't remember now why I thought that. I think it comes out later with the nuke situation. <laughs> right. So we'll keep an eye on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not the prime minister of Australia, we're going to get like 70,000 emails. So we'll know. <laughs> yeah. Bring them on, y'all. Correct us, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he rejigs the body to look like it's alive. But very important, he does not make this person alive. And in fact, the suits say that they don't want this leader alive. They want him right. to look alive, but they want to control him, which is so fucked. Right. <laughs> which is not unlike how many governments work, you know? I know. There's all sorts of speculation around, like, is this head of state actually in control or is it the people around them that's in control? And oftentimes it's like a little bit of both, but this is like a really just blatant, <laughs> you know, we're literally puppeting this this person. I also think it's really interesting the way that these chapters are organized. Mm -hmm. We're actually getting a window into how one puppets a dead body. Mm -hmm. And this is very relevant when we meet Ianthe through like Nibiris's body in this book. Right. We're getting told these stories side by side. And so you can see sort of how this, the very first time this ever happened with God and this prime minister, and then 10,000 years later with Ianthe and Nibirius and puppeting like skeletons and all of that good stuff is kind of just the norm in the nine houses, mm -hmm. right? And in particular in the ninth house. So I think it's pretty cool to see the evolution of necromancy past and then into present in this way. Right. And he's only able, even though he's very powerful, he's only able to do so much. So he tells the suits that they'll need him for, you know, big public appearances, anytime where he's going to have to like, give a big speech or answer a bunch of questions, John's actually going to have to be powering him. So it's not that they're just paying for this guy to be reanimated. They're also asking John to, to really like puppet him actively when needed. Right. Which is huge because that also gives John and crew more bargaining power. For sure. This also reminds me of Harrow puppeting her parents <laughs> for years right. after they kill themselves, which is kind of on a similar level in that they were in charge of the ninth house. Uh -huh. And so she also was puppeting her own little government in a way. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice parallel. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that this devolves into what it does because I can't imagine. I'd love to hear what people think about this. I actually think that how John and his crew ended up with a nuke 
is not so believable to me. I'm like, really? (laughs) You know? (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I guess governments do stupid shit all the time. So maybe it is believable. Mercy Morn and Augustine clearly had the foresight to be like, money isn't really going to be worth much, so we need something material. So that's what they're bargaining with. And it's funny, the roles that they take on in this negotiation bad cop, worst cop, and sorry cop, which I think yeah. bad cop is Augustine, worst cop is Mercy Morn, and no sorry doubt. cop is, is John, of course. But they like kind of stick to those roles throughout their entire existence together, I yeah. But this chapter just ends with John saying, that's how I ended up going home with a couple billion dollars and a suitcase nuke. And yeah. when I first read that, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's crazy. I think it's kind of crazy too and not particularly believable in our, like if you think about where we're at right now, but maybe like things are just so desperate. Also like, I mean, our government sells incredibly dangerous weapons to many different people all the time, many of whom are not good. That's true. Right. But I don't think we're like necessarily handing out suitcase nukes yet, but like in a more desperate time, I could see it. Yeah. Yeah, I that makes sense. I agree, sadly. Oy. But in any case, that's how they ended up with the, the nuke, which plays a major role in this story. What a bummer. Yeah. I remember thinking, like, yeah, when we got hints of what the apocalypse was like in Harrow, and Harrow's asking God what killed Earth, and he's like, oh, not much. Climate change and, like, a massive fission reaction or something it's like what was it <laughs> yeah an accident what government blew up what no it was actually him yeah <laughs> i didn't actually think that john caused the apocalypse anyway we're getting ahead right. of ourselves <laughs> but this is yeah. how that's able to happen yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so then we get a break from john for a hot minute because can we call it a break it's so stressful <laughs> it's a it- It's a break from John, but it's not like a take five moment. This is a let me throw you into the deep end of some gore here with Mm -hmm. Nona's tantrum. Right. So on the summary for our notes for this chapter, I just wrote Nona has a tantrum. That's the entire that's the entire chapter. (laughs) Very short chapter. It's gruesome. I don't even know what there really is to say. There's a couple things in here. Also, you know, we don't, we haven't really gone into the gore throughout these books on this podcast because it's just not our thing. But it's worth talking through a little bit, like how gruesome this scene is. Because Tamsin writes it in a way that you could, I mean, I skimmed through this when I first Mm -hmm. read it because I just, I don't do this. I don't do gore. But of course, on the second and third read through, The way she writes it is really interesting because she doesn't say, like, Nona's hand ripped off, (laughs) but that's what happens, you know? So Yeah, so just for context, um, last time we saw Nona, she had been shot by hot sauce. So that's where we're at. Nona wakes up, realizes that she's tied to a chair with, like, little plastic ties, and she goes berserk. This is Nona's third tantrum. And we proceed from there. (laughs) We proceed from there. There is a note here about the first two tantrums, one that she doesn't remember, but that 
Pira, she says, told her about it. And that mm-hmm. when Pira had told her about it, Pira had been laughing with her mouth, but not with her eyes. Mm-hmm. Her eyes had been very brown and distant and uneasy, as though this tantrum had reminded Pira of something her brain didn't want to bring back. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think Pira is remembering Electo f- very early on post-apocalypse. Right. That whole crew was terrified of Electo. They you know, referred to her as a monster. And so I think these tantrums were a big part of that. And so she has two of these before this moment, and I think Palamides and Camilla, after that second one, were like, you cannot have these tantrums any- anymore. And so they do some different things to try to make it so that she she doesn't have them. And that seemed to have worked. You know, she swims in the ocean, she learns how to breathe, all these coping mechanisms that a lot of people should have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does make Nona going to the ocean to swim make a lot more sense because without this context, it is kind of like they're so cautious, Pal and Camilla. So like why would they let her go swim in the ocean? I mean, it just – it seems wild, but it's it's just the only thing that keeps her from having these tantrums, the one sure way to keep her calm. And again, given our theory that, that Nona is Electo and Electo is Earth and is – you know, Earth was mostly salt water – she just feels very comfortable in the salt water. She's a salt water creature. And so that's what mm-hmm. it just really calms her down. Yeah. So we don't want to go into this in too much detail, but basically Nona comes through her plastic ties. That is how it's written. Nona came through them, mm-hmm. <laughs> meaning she's literally pulled her wrists through these ties <laughs> It made a mess. (laughs) Yeah, she's just ripping her body out of this chair, out of these ties, but she's not undoing the ties. She's just ripping her fingers off. She's ripping her wrists off. You know, she's she has no (laughs) self-preservation right now. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the fact that a human body to her is not her natural body, that this totally makes sense. Right. There's a moment in here about how the chair's arm had come off and Tamsin writes, the other arm had snapped off earlier. It had been useful when she needed a jaggedy edge to make herself smaller. I mean, but this is how this chapter is written, right? She's not going to say all of these body parts lopped off, (laughs) but that is what we can infer through the writing. It's also a lot of like slop, 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 (laughs) walking through the mess of blood and body parts. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty nasty. Nona does get out of the room that she was held in by just banging the door down and destroying her body over and over again. Yeah, it says that what was so nice about her tantrums is that it allowed her to just scream until her throat ripped apart. It allowed her to bash into the door over and over again unceasingly until the door, you know, yeah, she has no regard for her body. And it is, I assume, healing itself as she's doing all of this, but still gross. Totally gross. And so when she gets out into the hall, there's an interesting moment where everyone in the hall is screaming Uh and everyone in the hall being all the Edenites who are there. Right. And then there's Nona screaming. And so it says they're screaming, but Nona's scream was louder and they were screaming through their mask. But Nona screamed through hers, the mask that was the front of her face. I think this is a nod to Electo being in Harrow's body. 
Right. The Edenites who are screaming literally have masks on, as all Edenites do. But when Nona screamed, she's also screaming through a mask. It's the, the mask of the human body that she's wearing. I assume that even if Electa was in her Barbie body, it would still, it's still a mask. It's not really herself. Totally. And then it seems like, so all these Edenites are cringing away from Nona's scream. Mm -hmm. She gets shot like three times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They have gloved hands clapped over their helmets. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if this noise that Nona is making is similar to what the Lictors hear when they get close to the resurrection beast. Like this is not a normal scream that Nona is emitting from her body right Right. now. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone around her literally can't handle the noise that she's making. Right. It's some sort of psychic Lance shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's not pleasant for these people. And then someone puts a bag over her head and she finally calms down and I think passes out. And it says that this is really the only defense against her and that Cam had done this actually at the end of her second tantrum. Mm -hmm. And it kind of feels like being swaddled. And so she calms down. Yeah. And so we end this chapter with a couple interesting sentences. One being, when it went all dark, her body seemed to remember that she had used something up inside her, something enormous, and she started to tremble. And she trembled so hard that she thought she would die then and there. Inside her hood, she heard her mouth say, savage and distinct and cool despite the trembles, fool, you're killing her. But she was only talking to herself after all. Right. And I took this as the electo part of her telling her that she was killing Harrow. But it also could be Harrow. No, I think it's electo. I think it's electo kind of saying this. It's the part of Nona that is the complete electo that's saying this. Yeah, yeah. And I think that because it says savage and distinct and cool. And I, it kind of seems like what electo's like, even though we haven't really met her. Yeah, although Harrow could be described in that way too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think Harrow would be saying you're killing her about herself because clearly this voice is referring to the fact that Nona is destroying the body that she is in and that Mm -hmm. it is killing her. I'm wondering what is meant by she had used something up inside her, something enormous, and she started to tremble. Is that referring to like soul? What is that referring to? I don't know. I just feel like it's the power that she uses to heal herself. Mm. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. We're just staring at each other. I don't know either. Eh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) One other thing about the fool you're killing her is that it could possibly be Gideon because we know that, what did Tamsin say? Like, Mm. (laughs) Harrow ate the the burger, but were the the fries and the shake or something? Yeah, totally. So I do wonder if there's still That's like true. a little bit of Gideon attached or like something. This doesn't seem like very Gideon-like how this is said, but who knows? Yeah. Send us your thoughts. <laughs> right. It could be any. I think that it's probably Electo, although if it were Gideon, I wouldn't be surprised. But I think it's probably Electo because it says she's talking to herself. Right. 
And because what we know from later on is that Electo is actively repressing herself. Right. She doesn't want to know that she is Electo. She is trying to avoid that. And so I think this is like a slip up for her here. Right. So after that absolutely savage freaking chapter, we go back to a John chapter. Just can't get a break here. <laughs> and this is John 320. So we add a C and a T to our, our code. <laughs> so we've got the tower has react. <laughs> it's funny because in my memory, this code is the tower has risen. That is not what it is. No. And I feel like I am remembering in real time what it actually says. I think it said the tower has risen or something in the arc, which is maybe what you're thinking of. Ah, uh, yeah, that is what I'm thinking of. Okay. Anyway, so we're we're thrown back into a continuation of where we left off with John 5.1, now in John 3.20. And the gang is getting back to their digs with this suitcase nuke and they're like joking around about it Mm -hmm. because they're so stressed about having it and they're like we're never going to use this it's just our leverage (laughs) Uh lol right and so they hide it under the floor and they promise each other that they're not going to use it and their plan is basically to continue to push back against the FTL project and also to fund their own project with this money that they now have. And then their last resort, plan C, is to tell people that they have a nuke, not to use it, but as leverage. Mm -hmm. There's a part in here that I really, really love. There's tons of examples of this in the John chapters, but C, Cassiopeia, is really, I feel like she's really starting to be like, what are we trying to do? I'll just read the quote. It says, C kept saying, pick one. Are we more invested in proving this new plan is bullshit or in saving you, you being Earth? I was like, it's both. How can it not be both? C was like, it can't be both. Pick one and stick to it. Decide what you give a fuck about. So you can tell C is like, wait, are we, are we trying to save the world like we were originally trying to do or are we just trying to prove that these trillionaires are wrong? Right. Because there is a world in which... They could have just been like, okay, the trillionaires are going to do whatever the fuck they're going to do. We think they're full of shit, but no one's listening to us. So let's just continue our own plan and try our best Mm -hmm. with what we have to save the world and not put so Mm -hmm. much energy into trying to stop these motherfuckers from fucking everyone (laughs) over. But it's really become for John more about revenge and about getting back at everyone who didn't believe in them and who didn't let them do their plan. His biggest driver is vindictiveness now. Yeah, he's got an ego. I mean, he's a man with an ego. What can we say? Mm-hmm. And he, he also says here, I found the problem with being the death man is you stop giving much of a fuck. I mean, he literally says here, I don't care anymore. <laughs> you right. know? It's so weird. <laughs> Which is interesting because he's saying this, he's saying this to Electo. I don't know. It's like it's a weird, it's weird that he would admit that. Yeah, I mean, he's full of shit. Yeah, he's he's John. Mm-hmm. But he continues on, and he's so hung up on how people aren't listening to him, how no one mm-hmm. would give them the time of day. And he talks about how, you know, either people are scared of you and they listen, or you're good and no one cares. But it's not fair because I'm both good and no one will listen. <laughs> yeah. And so he's just he's just really, really hung up on how he has personally been wronged 
by these systems, by these people. He, he's not wrong about that. It's just, right. dude, get your shit together. Exactly. And he's super mad because the trillionaires get everyone to get the final sign-offs on the FTL plan. You know, they can only bring so many people on the first wave and they've already picked them out and everyone who's about to give them clearance is mad about that. And so they're like, okay, we'll let you nominate 200 people to go on the ship with them and their handpicked people, which I assume is their families and whatever. And everyone's so excited about the possibility of nominating themselves basically to go on the ship. <laughs> they give the FTL program a sign off that they wanted. So they have the go ahead. Yeah, it's like a carrot and a stick. It's a carrot and a stick. I mean, this is like a classic right out of the playbook. You give people a little bit of what they mm -hmm. want, but not enough that it's going to thwart your plans or kick you out of power. Uh -huh. and, and it works. John's like, I can't believe it worked. And it's like, yeah, yeah. dude, this is how the world works. This is how manipulation <laughs> works, yeah, which I, I think he then turns around and uses th those same tactics during his kind of goddom. Right. And they even send mercenaries to check the building site where the FDL ships are being built. And it's not up to spec. Like the materials that they're bringing in aren't even the right materials to build ships. And like the ship superstructures are not proceeding. They're just trying to look busy. And John and crew bring this evidence to sympathetic nations that are still willing to listen to them. And so he has proof-ish. But the trillionaires just lie. They, Of course. They just lie and they lie. And they use the cow thing against him, too. Right. So funny. It seems like someone in the mercenary group who John hired maybe tipped off the trillionaires that they were doing this because they have an answer for every piece of evidence that John puts forth. They're like, yeah, but this lie. Yeah, but that lie. Right. And I think John at that point realizes, all right, no one is going to by this. He's like, you know, I've been trying mm -hmm. to do things above board. I've been trying to give real evidence. And then I've been trying to like use science as a way to convince people of things. And mm -hmm. like, again, that doesn't actually work. And so he's like, let's be a cult. <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting because he had tried to coin this scientific term for what I think eventually became Thanergy. Yeah. Thinergy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like Tidianya. Tidianya. And yeah, he just kind of gives up. He's like, we have makeup and capes, so we're just going to go ahead and be a cult. And this is really the beginning of the culture of the Nine Houses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is where John learns that religion is more powerful than, than science when it comes to persuading and manipulating people. And this is the lesson that he takes with him for the rest of his life. And, right. <laughs> and he just becomes God. Because that is where the, the real power lies. Yeah. At the end of the day, so many people, they don't want to be like, oh, I'm going to go through all this science stuff that's so hard and long and whatever. They just want the silver bullet. They want the perfect little magical thing that will solve everything. And John mm -hmm. finally realizes that here. Yeah. And this is also, it, the chapter ends with John calling himself a necromancer for the first time. Right. This is the first time that that word is even mentioned in the John flashback chapters. Totally. The birth of the necromancer right here. It's funny. There's all sorts of instances about this throughout the book, but how language comes into place, something that's such a given for the nine houses now. 
was literally just John being pissed and being like, all right, I'm a necromancer. And then right. that <laughs> defines the whole the whole rest of his society. Yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> but that's how things work. That's how it goes. So yeah, that's the end of John 320. And all we're going to cover from the book today, start out small as we get back into it. We... Got a lot of emails asking us about covering The Unwanted Guest, the uh, short story that Tamsin Muir published, and we will cover it when it happens in Nona, which is very soon. Mm -hmm. We might do an episode after that episode mm -hmm. away from the book and talk about that short story. Yeah. Basically, when Camilla and Ianthi are actually sword fighting, after that episode is when we'll cover The Unwanted Guest. Right. Which I am so excited to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be fun. And we did want to talk about one thing. A lot of people have written in about Noodle, which we appreciate. And we might have a separate episode about specific theories, but we got this one message that I thought was really interesting from Cohobast612, who says, Hello, had been looking for some good lock tomb discussion and have really enjoyed hearing your takes on the series. Thank you very much. Anyways, <laughs> I suspect Noodle may partially be a reference to a six-legged dog called Priscilla from A Canticle for Leibowitz. Could be coincidence, but it seems like a book Tamsin might be familiar with. Just thought I'd share and wish you both well. We wish you well as well. <laughs> but I had not read this book, but I looked it up. It's like a social science, post-apocalyptic, sci-fi type book. And it seemed like very, I mean, I'm not sure. There's no way to prove it. But it seems like it could have been the genesis of at least like Noodle's form. Although Mel was telling me about <laughs> a very funny Reddit <laughs> exchange. <laughs> this is probably my favorite Reddit exchange that I've seen on the subreddit for the book series, which I think about this exchange often so if this was you thank you for giving me this gift that keeps on giving someone posted on the subreddit is noodles name a reference to something and they have a bunch of theories about it the person who posted this was electrical farmer 7-eleven great name and I won't read the whole post because y'all should just go read it but it's like a treatise on where Noodle's name might have come from. It's really interesting. The theories are really good. And I read it all and I was like, yeah, wow, so cool. And then someone responds and <laughs> said, actually, according to this post from a live event Q&A, Noodle is named after Oodles the Poodle from Rugrats. <laughs> <laughs> and Electrical Farmer responds, ah, yes, of course. How could I forget about squints at smudged writing on hand? Oodles the Poodle from Rugrats. <laughs> and I love this because we all go so hard on analyzing <laughs> these books. I mean, Amy and I literally created a whole podcast about these books. We're with you. We, <laughs> and of course, like there are moments where that analysis actually makes a lot of sense because Tamsin does pull all these different references and is influenced by all these different things and it's really fun to puzzle together and at the same time she just throws shit in like a reference <laughs> to Rugrats and you're like oh this is actually just that simple like it's not more complicated than that but you never know you don't know so I really loved that exchange it was hilarious but apparently Tamsin has 
actually said that Noodle's name comes from Oodles the Poodle from Rugrats. So right. that's not a bit, that's not too big of a mystery. But I do think that the form that Noodle takes as a six-legged animal, I, I appreciate this potential reference of Priscilla from A Canticle for Leibowitz. That's interesting. So that's our little uh, Noodle discussion. <laughs> We had a lot of people also writing and agreeing with you that noodle is the message or whatever, which we can cover more later, but a lot of noodle lovers out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we love dogs, especially dogs Mm -hmm. with six legs. How cool. How fun. Yeah. So that's all we're going to do for today. I did want to mention, if you haven't heard it, because it didn't come up on my Google alert for Tamsin Muir, which was upsetting, but This American Life, which is a podcast... Episode 811, The One Place I Can't Go from September, has a very short interview, interview, a short little snippet with Tamsin Muir where she talks about how she can't participate in the fan community around the lock tomb and what a bummer that is. And I just thought it was so charming and lovely and so great to hear her voice. So if you want to go listen to how Tamsin Muir wishes she could hang out with us but can't, then you can go check that out at This American Life. <laughs> I'm curious, Amy, are there any books that you're reading other than The Locked Tomb over and over again that you think would be fun for listeners? Sure. Well, I'm reading The Genesis of Misery, which you gave me, which is very good. I think you've mentioned it on it's so this good. podcast. It's really, really good. Yeah. Also very yeah. gay and cool, like sci-fi vibes. I also just finished this book called The Witch King, which is by Martha mm-hmm. Wells, whomst I love. And it was really good. I'm reading that right now. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm reading that right now. I'm on a Martha Wells kick because I was reading her Books of the Rexura, which is like uh-huh. an older series that she wrote pre-Murderbot. Uh-huh. And it's really good in a totally different way than these books. Mm-hmm. But those have been really fun. And I also just finished The Poppy Wars uh-huh. by R.F. Quing. Which is pretty dark and terrible, but also really well written that I that I enjoyed. There's three in that trilogy, and I'm I'm on the second one, The Dragon Republic. I actually have a book by her, Babel, on my bookshelf that I want to read soon. I am waiting for that at the library right now. So nice. Yeah, lots of good stuff out there. As we wait and wait and wait for Electo to come out. We are in the sort of the golden age of gay fantasy and sci-fi, so it's out there. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we could talk about books for forever, but we will sign on off. We are so glad you joined us today. If you have questions or comments or want to point out something that we missed, please send us a question on our website, locktombpod.com, or on Twitter, slash X, at locktombpod. (laughs) I will never, I will never call it X. Yeah, fuck that. Talk about a shitty trillionaire who's trying to go to space. I know. <laughs> yeah, so true. So true. <laughs> As always, if you liked this podcast, tell your friends to listen or rate and review us wherever you're listening to this. Thanks, Olivia K for our sweet theme music. I'm Amy. And I'm Mel. And we'll see you next time here at the Locktoon Podcast.